0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hey, Cynical Listeners, Kaiser here. Before we get started, just a couple of things. First, we've got a very cool event coming up for those of you who are going to be in the Boston area on the evening of Saturday, April 7th at 7 p.m. I imagine that some of you are going to be in Cambridge then for the Harvard China Forum. So while you're there... Head up to MIT, where we're going to be doing a Sinica and GGV combined live show with Hans Tung and Zara Zhang from GGV Capital. They are, of course, the two hosts of the GGV 996 podcast on cross-border technology, on investment, on entrepreneurship. I have the pleasure of producing that show, and we are now going into crossover mode. I'm going to uh, interview Hans about his incredibly fascinating experience as a tech investor. And then uh, Zara, Hans and I are all going to speak with Yasheng Huang, Professor of Global Economics and Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He is a renowned economist, very, very smart analyst on the state of U.S.-China relations and other things. Uh, You've heard him on the show before, I hope. This event is going to be free and is open to all. The show will be at 7 p.m. on Saturday, April 7th at MIT. Space is limited, and the specific location will be included in the confirmation email that we'll send you if you register. So do register. Register soon at 996.ggvc.com slash live. Again, that's 996.ggvc.com slash live. The other thing, this show that you're about to hear was recorded on March 24th, which was before we learned of Kim Jong-un's trip to Beijing. And so some of the comments of the guests might not reflect their current thinking post-Kim visit, just so you know. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's free daily email newsletter, or better still, sign up for our SupChina Access membership to receive discounts or free admission to events, early releases of podcasts, including this one, premium content, and perhaps best of all, join our community of listeners and readers in our lively Slack channel, where you can chat with our editorial team and with special guests we bring on. Visit our website at subchina.com for a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the sidelines of the Association for Asian Studies Conference in Washington, D.C. Co-host Jeremy Goldgorn is on holiday, so it's just me today. Historical memory has been a recurrent theme on this show, and in fact, just yesterday I spoke with Orville Schell about that topic, uh, looking at the way that China's party leadership controls, manipulates, and sometimes even just erases history in the service of contemporary political exigencies. So today we're going to talk about that topic when it comes to China's relationship with North Korea and uh, catch up a little bit on the state of China DPRK in this current time of crisis. Joining me today are two scholars of China and North Korea. Ma Zhao is Associate Professor of Modern Chinese History and Culture at Washington University in St. Louis. Ma Zhao is the author of Runaway Wives, urban crimes and survival tactics in wartime Beijing, uh, 1937 to 1949, and is working on a new book entitled Seditious Voices in Revolutionary China, 1950 to 1953. He's recently written an excellent paper that examines how a documentary series about the Korean War produced in China for the 60th anniversary of the armistice uh, reflects the shifting relationship between China and its problematic ally. Uh, He uh, appears frequently in commercial Chinese media and state-run US media. Uh Jao, welcome to Seneca.
0: Well, oh, thank you, Kaiser, for having me.
1: Yeah, uh, very welcome. We're also joined by John Delury, who's been something of a go-to for many media outlets seeking commentary on North Korea. He insists this is just because of time zones and his ability to speak, you know, native English. <laughs> anyway, but actually his insights have been terrific in helping us all understand the unfolding North Korea crisis. So John is Associate Professor of Chinese Studies at Yonsei University in South Korea and is co-author along with Orville Schell, uh, the aforementioned Orville Schell of one of the books that I recommend to anyone who asks for a good book recommendation uh, to understand how China's history reshapes its current worldview. That book is, of course, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century. Yesterday we had wealth, today it's power, right? (laughs) I'll take that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Unbelievably, yesterday was the first time I actually met John, uh, although we've communicated before, so it was great to meet you, man. It's really good to meet you at last, Kaiser, and welcome at last to Seneca. So uh, we're going to focus, like I said, on the historical relationship between China and North Korea. But before we do that, let's actually start with the the current state of things. Uh, uh, late last week, at time of recording, anyway, President Trump announced uh, Section Three O on tariffs on some sixty billion dollars of Chinese goods. After which. Uh, you know, China announced some initial and still modest retaliation. But uh, the same day, the very same day, Thursday, H.R. McMaster's uh, resignation as national security advisor was announced. And he's going to be replaced by former U.N. Ambassador John Bolton, the mustache of Armageddon. Um, Someone some who's he's known to be quite hawkish on Iran and on, of course, North Korea. And all this just weeks after Trump's surprising ad hoc acceptance of uh, an in-person meeting with Kim, Kim Jong-un. Uh, something that had just been you know, put forward kind of as, as uh, what was thought to be a non-starter in, in meetings between DPRK and South Korea. So let's start with you, John. Yeah. Um, with U.S.-China relations getting increasingly frosty uh, and with apparently more possibility of actual direct bilateral talks between North Korea and the U.S., where does this leave China?
2: Yeah, well, if, if we look back in the last year... Uh, and the way that Trump framed U.S.-China relations, North Korea was right at the middle of that, right? Right. And and basically, Trump made this deal very explicit. Uh, I care about two things, China. I care about North Korea and trade. And if you give me North Korea, if you're harsher and harsher on North Korea, then you sort of get trade. I'm going to lay off trade. Uh, Not to mention all the other things in the relationship, right, are now all second or third tier. Right. So, I mean, my reading of it is that that was a great year for Xi, because he was, for various reasons we may get into, I'm sure we will, He was happy to increase that pressure on North Korea. And, uh, and so it won him a very good year of U.S.-China relations. But by the same token, now we could be moving into a very different configuration. Sure. Because if, if Trump works out this North Korea thing, sort of along with the South Koreans, and we move into a diplomacy and progress, suddenly that framework is gone, right? Yes. And Trump doesn't need Xi on North Korea. And and indeed, you know, the 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 move on trade could be related to the fact that that he doesn't need China and North Korea in the same way as before. Uh, So it it really shakes up the whole framework. And so um, I I would guess that the the Chinese are scrambling a bit right now to figure out sort of what does this mean? Uh, And and uh, so anyway, I think that's kind of where we are in terms of the policy with the people. We can get into that, too. But it's that may be a slightly different story.
1: So China, of course, has a relationship with the ROK as well as with the DPRK. Uh, And, of course, there was a deep freeze in PRC-South Korea relations uh, that began with the initial deployment of THAAD, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense. Uh, And things have thawed a bit, and Korean boy bands that, you know, Decorate my, my daughter's room uh, are are no longer shunned. <laughs> I I guess in, in, in the, the mainland. Thank God. Um. So so Majjal, help us puzzle through uh, the the whole you know the remaining complexities of this polygon that we. Oh
0: made. sure. I mean as uh, well. I'm a historian by training, but uh, sometimes when you do the North Korean history, and so these current affairs always pop up in your, on your desk. Yeah. So for the uh, uh, for the recent uh, up and down and the recent development of uh, Trump and a Kim Jong Un romance, I think I have uh, two points to make. One is... uh, first of all, the question is, uh, has China ever played any decisive role in uh, North Korean foreign policy? Because, you know, the reason why I'm asking the question is because uh, uh, here's a notion that China and North Korea, they, they are a- allies, right. and so that's why we expect China to play a very major role in uh, North Korean uh, foreign policy. But the problem is uh, China withdraw, uh, you know, 1956, so uh, North Korea basically purged the whole faction of uh, pro-China, uh, this uh, senior leadership in their own party, and then 1958, uh, so uh, the People's Volunteer Army withdraw from North Korea. Right. And ever since that, uh, I would say that uh, not a, a, any single major foreign power has any meaningful relationship or meaningful impact in North Korean
1: foreign policy. Right. After all, the doctrine and, of self-reliance. Yeah.
0: Right. I mean, so that's, the th- that's something we need to uh, keep in mind. And the second one is, uh, I don't think China will be just marginalized because China is always there. And so, and also the prospect of this talk, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, is so uncertain uh, certain because, I mean, uh, the core issue is security, and we don't think the security thing can be easily resolved. And the second one is the trust, you know, and how much uh, each party will trust the other. And so uh, without uh, resolving security issues and no trust between uh, from North Korea and vis-a-vis United States, and I think China will play some role over there, not central, not decisive, but uh, it will be marginalized.
1: Do you think that it's impacted at all by the warming of relations with the ROK these days?
0: Well, I think it's getting better, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, but again, the uh, ultimately, This is going to be resolved between two powers, the United States and China, and so uh, uh, South Korea. They can do something, but not necessarily uh, can change the whole game. This is my view. Maybe John has a different uh, take.
2: Uh, uh, no, I mean the, that third thing is interesting, right? Because um, during if we if we zoom out a little bit during the whole period, the kind of pivot to Asia period. When U.S. policy was looking for strengthening its alliances, picking up new ones, you know, getting in Vietnam, port calls, and all this stuff going on. Um, you have many countries in Asia, not all of them, but many who are, who are eagerly seeking this out with the United States, right? right? Um, South Korea was not one of those countries. No. I mean, it has an alliance, and it was fulfilling all that. But it was during that period, if you recall, the Pak the early years, where the South Korea China relationship probably reached a certain kind of peak, Sure. Uh, economically. I mean, they were they're closing in on three hundred billion. They're moving up to three hundred billion in trade volume. Uh, you remember when when the South Korean president stood on Tiananmen Square? You know, it was like Xi Xi Jinping and Putin and right, and the North Korean guy was in the back row. You know, way off, uh, trying to stay out of the photo. Um, so that's that's a really interesting moment of this uh, of the South Korea. China piece getting much closer together and then it fell apart over thad. I'm not too surprised what we're seeing now which is even though she made a big thing about big stink about thad and they pushed it quite hard, you know, and they did economic bullying and they did these sort of de facto sanctions and all that. Um, but essentially what we're seeing now is with the new president with Moon with mooning, right? who sent clear signals I want a good I want to restore like a good relationship with China. But I think Moon basically said to she I mean Look at what's going on, right? Kim is launching a missile like every other week. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm myself, maybe ambivalent about that, my public is so clear about this. The world's kind of so clear. So we're going to have to improve, despite the the existence of this battery, right? And, and the, the and reason and she, that she accepted I, yeah. that.
1: The reason that I, I ask is, I, I feel like this is a. a a piece of the puzzle that is often very much overlooked in mm-hmm. the U.S. I mean, in our own, we, we don't look at this relationship between
2: South Korea and China as much as we probably ought to. I agree. Okay. There's very little uh, attention paid to it. And it's, you know, since I'm living over there, it's been eight years. And as a China expert, I mean, it's really nuanced. You know, it's, it's in its own way more complicated at this point than the China-North Korea relationship. Right. You know, because South Korea has this strong alliance with the United States committed to that. But it's a country that really wants a good relationship with China. You know, and so they're they're every day kind of navigating that, territory. and
0: also you have to think about this domestic dynamic in the, uh, South Korea's internal politics mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. this is the president coming from a a party historically supports in you know, reconciliation and in a close relationship with North Korea, and so uh, if uh, the talk and uh, doesn't deliver the uh, you know his promise or fulfill the promise, and so uh, that might be something uh yeah he faces you know, different. A, yeah, mm-hmm. an
1: unhappy electorate at home. So, I mean, what we really want to do, though, with the rest of this podcast is look historically at, at things that, I mean, bear, have, you know, very strong bearing on, on the state of relations today. So let's start off maybe by sketching a brief outline history of the relationship between North Korea and China since the outbreak of the war and maybe try to periodize it. I mean, Majal got to start on this talking about uh, what had happened after 1956 with the expulsion, basically, of the entire faction of, of the Workers' Party that was pro-China. Uh, that, that's right. Uh, I I actually just had the pleasure of attending a panel on which both of you presented. Najah, um, you, you've been interested in explaining how the early PRC propaganda machine mm-hmm. actually sold the very idea of supporting Korea to ordinary Chinese people who, in the year 1950, uh, still had you know a very bad impression of Koreans. Uh, can you talk about first of all what attitudes toward Korea were mm-hmm. like? in the general populace of China and within the Chinese Communist Party at the time, and tell us how the party managed to persuade people to sort of rehabilitate mm-hmm. uh, the image and promote internationalism. Mm-hmm. Again.
0: I think this is a good question because I mean, when we think about this China-North Korean alliance, it's usually we go back to the moment when this alliance was forged, which is the uh, wartime, you know, 1950. But uh, actually there's more than that and because historically this is a two country, I mean they share this pretty much same uh, part of the neighborhood and. Uh, the, the the community over there so uh, the uh Uh, from early 20th century and all the way down to uh, the Korean War, and there's a lot of uh, sort of baggage in the relationship between these two countries. In my research, I show that there's a significant amount of uh, anti-Korean sentiments at the time of the war started in 1950. You know, that sentiment goes into uh, China's traumatic experience in the early 20th century when China was not just only victimized by the industrial powers you know European countries and Japan, but also by, uh, you know, countries that used to be part of the uh, Chinese uh, tributary empire. So Mm. Korea, that's a good example, because up until uh, 1894, 1895, the first Sino-Japanese War, uh, Korea was uh, a part of, and, you know, within Chinese uh, uh, just imperial tea, yeah, orbit. Okay. Right, and so, but after that, uh, the uh, uh, Korea uh, was colonized by Japanese Empire, and so that really overturned this entire geopolitical relationship in East Asia. So no longer China on the top, and then Korea and Japan, but now we see is Japan on the top, and then Korea as a colony, as a second tier country, and then it's the China's occupied territory. So what the uh, what what the Koreans did in the Chinese, uh, in the Japanese occupied territory in China, I mean they uh, run drug syndicates and they were drug, drug empires, and so it involved all kinds of crime especially in North China so uh, when we get down to uh, uh, the Korean War that part of historic, historical memory continues and it continue to haunt people's memories Is, is
1: there a role in, in crime and in, in drugs and prostitution so is this is pretty well attested is this I mean I, I've not really heard much about that I mean it's it rises above just sort of rumor the way say we talk about maybe West Africans in, in Beijing today or
0: mm-hmm. no well actually it's well documented and okay. because we see if you go to the uh, Beijing Municipal Archives where I did my uh, archival research and you do this uh, North Korean uh, just, just put in the Korean and do the keyword search and it will come up at least uh, hundreds of documents talking about uh, uh, you know they were done by the Beijing Municipal Police before 1949 and so uh, you know documenting uh, all kinds of criminal activities uh, uh, Koreans engaged and uh, just to give you one quick example in 1939 and the Beijing Municipal Police they identified uh, five, four uh, hundred 449 Korean Drug dealers inside operating in Beijing. Just so the that's Beijing. in a big that's that's in a big number, you know. For we're talking about opium, right? Uh, all kinds of, and it's just, uh, primarily opium and heroin, and uh, uh-huh. so just kind of narcotics. But again, think about this: drug is just part of the uh, uh, this underworld of criminality. So there's other things involved as well.
1: So they're still at it with the meth now. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so how? I mean, the other part of my question was how how did they rehabilitate that image?
0: Oh, yes, so uh, that's why this become a daunting task and you know, for the communist propaganda campaign at war, you know, to uh, uh, to talk about how you uh, uh, how you understand you know, why China sh- should kind of spill up their blood and to support this ally. They do this in two ways. One is uh, they say this is internationalism we are talking about today because, you know, China is often liberating its own country, so uh, China is going for international stage, and so Korea is the valuable Cold War ally for China. So, uh, you know, for this global vision, global mission so uh, you know korea is our legitimate ally and also the second one is uh, they do this class analysis basically say we have uh, uh, revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries just like we have in china you know so the revolutionaries in north korea uh, revolutionaries in korea and they are now all in north korea Right. And so they're this anti-revolutionary separate. they're all in south so that's an easy way for them to talk about uh, you know how you identify your ally and your enemy
1: huh I mean, and we are going to be talking about how they then tried to strip out the internationalism content and the export of revolution. And that, that, that. Uh, when we uh, sure. move further on and talk about mm-hmm. this uh, paper that you've written, mm-hmm. uh, John, in mm-hmm. the years immediately following the armistice, um, I suppose most people probably assume that the relationship between the wartime allies stayed pretty tight. But you know, as John just said, in 1956, you know, uh, there were some pretty big changes. 53 uh, was the year that Stalin died, and then de-Stalinization would begin in earnest. Uh, a few years later when Khr- Khrushchev and his secret speech and so forth. Uh, was this the event that changed things in 56, or did this have nothing to do with uh, a, maybe a warming tie between the Soviet Union and, and Korea? In other words, was the incipient Sino-Soviet split uh. part of the reason for these incipient maybe North Korean-Chinese split?
2: uh 56 is a really, really critical moment, an interesting moment. I think that's too early... I think we're getting teleologically ahead of ourselves to to read back the Sino-Soviet split. Um, I think it's best understood in a domestic uh, politics of North Korea context where Kim Il-sung, I mean, keep in mind, the guy is very young. You know, he's got a good pedigree because he, he was a partisan. He did fight. He was on the good side. You know, the communist fighting against the Japanese um, a, as part of a basically Chinese Red Army. And then some years in the Soviet Union, we're not 100% sure if he was in jail or, or <laughs> to some extent serving with the Soviet forces. But anyway, the Soviets back him and they bring him in. They put him in power. He's a very young guy, you know, early 30s. You know, I think it's fair to say, especially then, uh, Korea is a very Confucian society. You know, I mean, the elder, the notion of a leader should be an older person. And so here's this young kid, really, right, who has to establish himself. He's got the backings of Moscow. And so that gives him that first position. But through the war, there are purges right after in stages, late stages of the war, after the war. And 56 is kind of a really big one. But Kim Il-sung has to consolidate his power. I mean, I think that stuff is relevant to understanding his grandson, you know, in the (laughs) last (laughs) six years of power. So in '56, if we think about the Sino-Soviet dimension, he pushes out not just the so-called Yan'an faction. Uh He also pushes out the Moscow faction.
1: Ah, And in
2: fact, it's very interesting, Beijing and Moscow have a dual intervention where they send envoys... Peng Dehuai comes from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, senior envoys coordinated, Moscow and Beijing, go in and tell Young Kim, hey, don't go too far with this purge thing. And so he sort of backs off, and then he completes it, and he pushes them out. So it's a different dynamic. I mean, in a way, it's kind of the last stages of watching uh, the Soviets and the Chinese kind of work together to try and manage the North Korea issue. Before the end. And he, he pushes <laughs> back against both of them. Later, especially from, I mean, I think the clearest moment you can see it is 1961, where a very important year, in, especially insofar as Kim Il-sung signs a treaty with, with the Soviet Union, a defense treaty with the Soviet Union. And then he keeps going. He takes the train from Moscow to Beijing and signs a treaty with Mao. Okay. So the current treaty is a 1961 uh, treaty. That's right. The Russians got rid of it, but the Chinese still abide by it. So by 61, everyone knows the Sino-Soviet split, obviously, as well. there. So that's where we see... You know Kim Il Sung becomes really a master of manipulating you know, the 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 schism within the communist bloc.
1: And let's let's talk about how he manipulated the schism. Did he play Moscow and Beijing off against one another? What what, what was the period of the 1960s like?
0: Well, again, here we need to think about uh, because when we talk about the socialist bloc in the during the Cold War, and we tend to emphasize the the how close uh, North Korea is a part of the socialist umpire, the socialist uh, camp. But at the same time, you know, again, think about uh, this is a guy and this is uh, the revolution coming out of a very strong nationalist sentiment. And so that's why on the one hand, yes, they receive an aid and they receive military supplies from all the socialist brothers. But at the same time, you know, for Kim Yo-sung, and uh, not just the uh, uh, consolidating his power by purging uh, all this uh, pro-Russian and pro-Chinese and factions, but also, just giving one example, you know, he even uh, uh, managed his, uh, his his economy and uh, not, not, uh, not participating in the socialist uh, economic cooper- cooperation, uh, that kind of uh, system. And mm. they even calculated you know, his own uh, five, seven-year plan in a different schedule and just to be trying to avoid you know being uh, uh, messed up by the uh, socialist allies and so that's just giving a sense of uh, you know, he is really think about and you know, how to be independent uh, you know before
1: these two communist giants so let's fast forward a little bit to uh, the, the dawn of, of reform and opening. Uh, your paper, John, on, on political succession in the Kim dynasty looks at the, the strain on the relationship uh, at, at around that time when a dynastic succession was happening in Pyongyang at precisely the moment when Deng was attacking the very idea of lifelong leadership, which is ironic today, as you correctly noted, um, that, that, that saying that it was quintessentially feudal, right? Uh, it was fengjian. Uh, anyway... How did North Korea at that time view the cha- – so that was great, I mean, and we, we can talk about that some other time, but um, how did North Korea at that time view the changes that were already underway in its larger neighbor? Did they see Dung as having sold out the revolution, playing footsie with the U.S. as he had all through – I mean, Mao he, and Zhou started to do, but, but you know, by, the, by 1980, they had been – Arming the Mujahideen, and they had listening stations. That for the U.S. CIA in mm. Western China, uh, and you know they were they were very
2: much in bed with the U.S. and was part of the strategic triangle. Yeah. All right. So since this is a podcast, uh, I'm going to go out on some historical limbs here. Go all for right? it. But Montjoy, don't report this to any of the academic authorities because I mean, your question requires us to speculate. Me to speculate. Uh, a little bit beyond where the evidence stops. sure. Um, but especially dealing with North Korea, that's kind of, uh, if, if you want to say anything, you know, you have to take some of these speculative moves. So I think it's very interesting, your question, you know, and if we put ourselves sort of in Kim Il-sung's shoes, right? When Mao dies in 76, uh, go back, when, when Stalin dies in 53, Mao now says, I'm Lao Da, I'm the big You know, I'm the head of the whole show, show. right? And that's a big part of the problem with Khrushchev is like Mao doesn't accept it. He thinks now he's... Well, when Mao dies in 76, guess who maybe thinks now he's the (laughs) long you know, is Kim Il-sung. And I think this question of Kim Il-sung, Deng Xiaoping, I think their relationship, I mean, it's kind of fascinating me to try and piece it together, you know. So let me give you one example. In 78, um, Hua Guofeng visits in May. And, uh, from, from what I've been able to collect, it's a, it's a full on extravaganza. It's a love fest, you know, four or five day trip. Uh, you see Kim Il-sung and Hua Gua go and all these events together. And it's a big sort of, yeah, you know, They deserve each other. Yeah. So, uh, in September, Deng Xiaoping visits. It's f- quite interesting. Two in a year, right. right? Spring and fall. And there's this one image that just kind of fascinates me. It's just a still, it's Deng Xiaoping at the airport. Kim Il-sung's not there. Greet him on the tarmac. And it's Deng walking in front of a huge picture, two huge portraits of Kim Il Sung and Hua Guofeng. Wow. You know? And it's kind of like, hmm, you're Deng Xiaoping, you know? <laughs> sort of reminds you this whole who you thing. Are. Feel? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think there's a lot of of tensions going on. And then as far as what we look back and and everyone celebrates, you know, Gaiga Kaifeng, they're not using the term yet, but Dung already, you know, has the whole vision in mind. And I don't know, I think you're Kim Il-sung at that period. North Korea's still doing okay, you know? The gap has not exploded yet with with the South. Uh, Militarily, they're at about parity with South Korea. Uh, Kim Il-sung may have gotten some ideas about wanting to reunify because he saw what just happened in vietnam uh and you know and you're looking at dung and you're you know you don't know the future that china's going to run circles around you economically Uh i think there's an arrogance you know on kim il-sung's part and imagine how infuriating that is when you're Deng xiaoping so So
1: already the lips and teeth are not quite yeah sort of chattering in the cold
2: (laughs) now that again that was speculative history we just indulged in. Okay, yeah, but the, so. <laughs> the most fun kind. Let's, let's
1: uh, we, we have still a lot of history to move through before we get to you know 2013, which is where I want to stop again. But let's look at some of the inflection points um, up, up, up in the relationship uh, during this period of, of, of China's very robust reform and opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, across the 80s and then again in the 90s and maybe into the first decade of the 21st century what, what what's how would we if we wanted to just sort of hit the highlights of the the DPRK PRC relationship in those years I, th- we... I think you know the uh,
0: the one flashpoint or the, uh, the turning point in the PRC DPRK relations that would be a uh... Uh, 1992. Mm-hmm. The reason why I'm t- saying that is there's several events happening over, uh, in that year. So first of all, if you look at the domestic politics in China, so uh, this is uh, the time they have this 14th Party Congress, right. and so uh, they, you uh, know, in, uh, in, in China they uh, revise the, par- the party constitution. So every time you read the party constitution, uh, it's kind of a boring document, but if you really read it very closely and see what kind of terms they were put into the uh, the, the document and what uh, taken out, that'll be uh, give you the this indications of anything happens there sure, sure. so uh, the uh, the term I'm interested in is internationalism because the term itself shows the way China look at the world and look at uh, where China is in the world so uh, basically before 1992 China had this internationalism uh, inside the party constitution and basically that sent a message saying that China is a revolutionary force trying to unite the global working class against global capitalists but in 1992 when they redo this constitution uh, the party constitution, they... That- Took that word out, and in its place, they put in a peace and development. So, which is quite an interesting thing, because it basically tells the world that uh, China no longer see, you know, class conflict and class struggle as the driving force for the human history, and instead, China see, you know, how to coexist with the imperialist, of, not imperial, capitalist powers, right? And to get, uh, in the Chinese cases, uh, to turn them into China's trading partners, the United States and South Korea, that is even more uh, important, right, for the global revolution. So now they use the the party constitution to document that change. So that's the uh, domestic politics. But if you look at uh the PRC DPRK relations. China has a uh, top level visit with North Korea to celebrate the 80th birthday of uh, Kim Il Sung, which is you know this is happened right after the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And so for Kim Il Sung, he is trying to organize the remaining progressive parties in the world and the communist party in the world and try to reignite
2: in quotation marks
0: in quotation marks <laughs> to reignite this revolution. Okay, but the problem is uh, China refused to sign you know this document saying that China want to be the leader. Okay, so huh. this is a, a Deng Xiaoping's policy of maintaining low profile. You know, so that's and then the same year, China and South Korea, uh, they 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 normalize Normalized the relationship. Relations. Yeah, I was going to say, and
2: mm-hmm. and Zhao does a be- brilliant job setting that up. I mean, that's the that's the dagger, right uh, into the in heart. The back. And, uh, yeah, the back oh, In uh, the back, back right in the heart. No. <laughs> um, and you know, I don't. I mean, I think to They're some front extent, yeah, to <laughs> no, some front extent stabbers. that. That did something that the relationships never recovered from. You know, that, uh, I mean, I think it's important for people who aren't familiar with this history and relationship, the dynamics to understand. That was just such a fundamental betrayal, you know. And, I mean, I've talked to North Koreans who will bring it up. I mean, it's definitely still part of the consciousness that at that moment, the China just sold them down the river right. you know and didn't even try cross normalization which was always the plan right if if China normalized it with South Korea then you get the US to normalize with North Korea there's at least some kind of parity no no China just does unilateral does yes, its right, thing. Right, right and and this is this is fresh post cold war everyone's you know trying to figure out where they land and uh, yeah, so that that one still felt I so. There's another big
1: event in 1992, of course, mm-hmm. also which was the Nanshin Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping basically mm-hmm. revitalizing, mm-hmm. recommitting to who reform mm-hmm. with this tour of the southern provinces. And so, mm-hmm. uh, how does this? I mean, I, I was trying to get to this before. You know, I'm the, the attitudes about economic reform in China and how it's been such an object of resistance. I know that, for example, you know, in just last, I guess it was last year that. Kim Jong-un's half-brother was killed. I mean, he'd already been on the outs, uh, uh, as, as far as I understand it, because he was an advocate of sort of Chinese-style reform. Uh, some, okay, you, 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 correct me, but i mean that's that's the well, that's a, I, that's a tough
2: case. I'd be, I'd be careful about linking that too closely. But okay. uh, I'll start on this, and Ma Zhao can add, in terms of North Korean views of, of China's economic development, um, I remember looking, this is a while ago that I looked at this, but it's one of these, you know, there's a wonderful trove of documents from the Soviet and East European archives uh-huh. that pertain to uh, discussions about North Korea, so it's a lot of how you can do the diplomatic history. Uh, and the Wilson Center has this amazing website that puts it up, and I think it's in that collection where there's a very interesting conversation. Kim Il Sung uh, is talking. Um, who's he talking? Maybe to Honecker in East Germany, uh-huh. Eric Honecker. Um, yeah. And so this is like late '80s. You know, I think it's pre-Tiananmen, but already uh, the the model is is apparent by that point. And he uses this phrase saying to East Germany, we're sticking with socialism, but those Chinese are betraying it, you know, and they're going <laughs> down the capitalist road. So again, there's this notion of we're the center of this thing, you know, we're carrying on the project. Uh, and so I think that goes into the post-Cold, post-Cold War period. We can get to it. I think it's quite fundamentally different now, and that's very important for people to understand. But Kim Il-sung and then and then Kim Jong-il, I think they really hold on to uh, a socialist Centralized, you know, kind of the Soviet model economy. Despite all the evidence, domestic and international, that it's failing them, they was, stick was with there socialism. A
1: debate within the North Korean elite about this. Were the, surely there were some people who would have been seduced by the Chinese successes, even you know the visible, you know, early as the late eighties.
0: I think first of all, I'm not doing the uh, North Korean elite politics. So, and also this whole system in North Korea is extremely opaque. closed and yeah, opaque, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's just so hard to say there's any internal debate or discussion over this. Sure. But I think is what we can say is that they they tried and uh, smaller, you know, a bigger reform and trying to uh, get their economic e- economy back on foot. And uh, so, but I the problem is, uh, first of all, it's too late. You know, it's uh, it's uh, this is a different world right now. And secondly, is uh, uh, I think they understand that uh, you know their country is getting to uh, will be very vulnerable if they do anything differently.
2: You know, so yeah, when I
0: mean, you you're starting something fundamental change,
2: and we're leaving out uh, all the security stuff that's going on at the same time, right? Yeah, um, let's, let's, let's you know maybe cover that quickly. Well, just 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 to to jump in here with the fact that. Why, how is Dung able to do what he's able to do, you know, to switch from uh, from power to wealth, is because 64, China gets a nuclear weapon, you know, and develops that program. Sure. So they have that kind of basic deterrent that the North Koreans now say they have. And to some extent on the basis of that, Mao makes the breakthrough with, with Nixon, right? And so China now has a weird kind of secure, security guarantee from the Americans mm-hmm. and that relationship. Uh, so North Korea lacks all those things. Um, I think at some fundamental level, the reason that North Korea is not ready in this in this period is the security context. Yeah, they right. can't focus on prosperity and opening up and the risks that that entails because at a at a basic level, they lack the security of their regime, their their borders, their sovereignty. Right, you have to have the power before the wealth.
0: I mean, if I can jump in, now. so I mean to talk about this security concern for North Korea. I mean, this is a quite a, a, you know, a, apparent, because if you just look at the, the map of the world, you know, you will see a Korea as the good example of uh, this country at the crossroads of empires, right? I mean, so look, look at the map, you will see uh, Russia to the north, and then China to the, uh, to the west, and then uh, Japan to the east, and then Americas everywhere. Right.
1: Don't so, forget South Korea. Right? And South Korea, right? I mean, you will see, this
0: is a country surrounded by all these big powers, sure. right? I mean, so they have, all these powers at some point can be a source of help, right? I mean, they can give you the military assurance or give you an economic aid, but they can turn against you, right? I mean, so you see the Korean War and basically this is a government almost in a, in a, almost destroyed by the war, right? So uh, that's why to go back to John's point, uh, you know, this security concern is, is always there. Paramount. Yeah, it's paramount.
3: Hi there, Seneca listeners. It's time for me to talk about one of my favorite subjects again, food. The good people at HelloFresh have sent me another delivery of meal kits. As you may know, I'm the main cook in my family, and I spent long enough in China that I now see making food for my family as the most masculine and macho thing I can do, aside from lift heavy weights or becoming a ninja, or maybe uh, developing a sword collection to rival Kaisers. Anyway, I don't have a lot of time to shop for groceries, to cook, to feel manly. I've got a website and daily newsletter to edit, podcasts and videos to record every week, and a high-energy group of colleagues who keep me on my toes. So HelloFresh is perfect for people like me, who like to cook, but don't have time. It's a meal kit delivery company that offers three different plans, classic, veggie, and family. Last time they sent a package, my and my kids' favourite was Mushu Pork Tacos. This time they sent chimichurri Chicken Paya, Sweet as Honey Chicken, and some very nice hamburgers. You can choose the delivery day for each meal. You can pause the account if you go out of town, and each meal costs less than $10. They typically take about half an hour to cook, and the kits come with exactly the amount of each ingredient that you need, and super easy instructions. The great thing about these kits is that even if you cook a lot like I do, it is very easy to get stuck in your own cooking comfort zones. These kits make it easy to make a new dish with step-by-step instruction cards and exactly proportioned ingredients. If you need to cook good food fast with no fuss, please visit HelloFresh.com and support us by entering promo code supchina 30 for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. Now, on with the show.
1: Ma Zhao, your paper that I referenced earlier, you, you point to a period of very rapid deterioration of relations in 2013. Uh, it's just ahead of the commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the armistice. So uh, what was the significance of the fact, let's, let's just look at, I mean, I think it's it's telling that China did not hold any commemoration for the 60th anniversary of the armistice they had done in, in previous years, but uh, none at all on the 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. The, 60th uh, anniversary. the 60th anniversary. Sorry, the 60th anniversary, mm-hmm. right.
0: I mean, there's several things going on. First of all, you see uh, definitely the generational change of Chinese leadership. So uh, before that, you still have uh, uh, the, uh, either the, the Yan'an or the revolution veterans, they were in their positions, and or the people who participated in the Korean War, and so they were in power. So that creates uh, uh, some kind of uh, uh, human connections and people-to-people connections between the leaderships. But uh, since Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, this is a post-war generation of Chinese leaders. So well, you don't have that kind of uh, you know, personal level exchanges at, at, at all. And also uh, China is moving, uh, first of all, we call them the post-revolutionary uh, politics. Mm-hmm. And so and not just China abandoned uh, this whole notion of internationalism, but also China got into this, this kind of breathtaking economic reform. So, uh, you know, Chinese, this uh, United States has become the leading uh, trading partner with China. And uh, South Korea has very close connections with China in a range of economic and geopolitical issues. So uh, and then China is trying to project its uh, its own both a hard power and a softer power on the international stage. So when you have uh, you know a regime like North Korea as your ally, and uh, so uh, you know it just looked bad for Chinese government. Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, that, that,
1: that, I mean, I, I always looking for the right metaphor for the way that Chinese people, the average sort of educated elite in, in China now thinks about, um, their, their erstwhile, maybe, you know, North Korean ally, the problematic one. I mean, was it that pit bull that got bitey that used to be kind of proud of its pugnacity, but now, or was it that, that little brother, that maybe developmentally challenged little brother who, is, you know, sort of very large and, and, um, you know, good in a fight. And, well, I mean, what's the right right metaphor here? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is what does the average now, the the average Chinese elite, uh, how do they regard it? I mean, you started off talking about this podcast, talking about how sort of ordinary Chinese people had regarded uh, North Korea in the past. What about now?
0: Well, it's it's very interesting to see uh, all those derogatory terms used by the Chinese in nineteen the fifties. They'll come back, and for example, you Gali know the the, the bounds or Korean thugs, you know. And so this is a how, uh, in part, this is a racial um, um, slur. Yeah, and, it is. Uh, and and but at the same time, it just shows uh, uh, China Chinese and they they just dislike you know North uh, K- Koreans or maybe North Korea in particular.
2: And, and I think especially in this recent period. The feeling is mutual. Yeah, no, no that's uh, the question. And North man. Koreans, um, I mean, Kim Jong Un's attitude is very clear towards Xi Jinping, and I and I think we can see that reflected more broadly. I mean, it sends a signal to everyone: uh, you don't have to hold back anymore. You can talk about how you hate the Chinese, you know. Um, so it's again, this is fascinating to watch. That sort of both sides, and these are both authoritarian states at a minimum. But I think one thing we've all learned. David Hume points it out, is even an authoritarian state is subject to public opinion in certain ways yeah. and sensitive to public opinion. And so this development's very important. I mean, the longer this goes, the deeper, the wider it spreads, where both the Chinese and the North Korean publics, you know, have this have this uh, disdain, this animosity, the way they look at one another. Um, well, that has intense ramifications, you know, and I mean, to, to, to jump ahead a little bit to some of the diplomacy of this year, uh, frankly, it's an opening. It's an opening for the United States and for South Korea, at least if we look at it from a North Korean perspective, because they are so far out on the line away from the Chinese right now. They're kind of, they're kind of out there saying, pick me up. So you've been in the media talking about this before,
1: but I don't feel like this message is sinking
2: in. I don't, I I feel like
1: people don't. I I
2: gotta, I gotta say it on CNN when my kids walk in the door behind me. Exactly. That's, uh, that's
1: what you gotta do. You gotta (laughs)
2: set that up and have them. Stage it. (laughs) Your wife at the ready. No, it's frustrating. I mean, people don't, uh, the American conversation about our topic, the China North Korea relationship has been so fixated on gotta get the Chinese to increase the pressure, they're 90% of the economy, if China would just shut it down, then we can get denuclearization, you know? And that message, I mean, there are some elements to that that are fine, but it's a very one-dimensional understanding. And that's all you hear just over and over and over again without understanding, I think, some of the stuff that we're getting at in this conversation.
1: So in the time that we have left, I will want to focus now on, on uh, the substance of this paper that you wrote, which was just fascinating. Uh, you know, when you look at the PRC founding myth, I mean, I think you talk about this in your paper, one of the, the pillars of it really is the, the war to aid Korea and resist America, right? Sure, yes. I mean, along with things like land reform and along with things like, you know, the campaign to suppress counter-revolutionaries. But, you know, this is now kind of... Irrelevant revolutionary anti-imperialist baggage that actually weighs down on on China. It's a bit like how they're trying to wrestle with Mao. They want to divest him of all the ideological crap, but they recognize he's still very much a load-bearing wall, right? And you can't just knock it down. Uh, So you mentioned in your paper, uh, Zhao, that that, that, the one national museum of the Korean War in Dandong, uh, which was renovated in 1993. Again, this is interesting, 93, that's the 50th anniversary. Uh, it, it completely softened the whole tone, not just on, on the Korean War, but also on the U.S. Uh, that couldn't have gone down well. And then you have this paper uh, about The Unforgettable Victory, which is this 12-part uh, documentary document, series mm-hmm. that, that, that aired in 2013, just some months after the actual commemoration date. So, so tell us very, very quickly about this documentary and what's so significant about it.
0: Well, first of all, the documentary film is the only, uh, let's say, example of how China uh, commemorated this war or if at, at all, you know, at that point because uh, right around the 60th anniversary of the armistice and all major parties in the war, they all they all held some kind of ceremonies to to uh, commemorate this significant historical event but China only just released this uh, this documentary film And so uh, and not even
1: on the date, right? It was like months later
0: uh, but well, that's the sort of Chinese calendar because uh, normally China remember the day, uh, or commemorate this this day uh, at the time to uh, the Chinese uh, volunteer army cross the uh, the border, not the uh, the uh, day not, not the, the, the war erupted. Okay. Uh, so or the, the Amtis. So that's how they remember the war. And but the uh, the interesting thing is, uh, you see how they're trying to uh, uh, really redefine, uh, give this war a purpose, and in, in the post-revolutionary period, because as the Kaiser you you mentioned that uh, all this revolutionary frameworks of this war has gone uh, during the uh, reform era, and so you know it's no longer internationalism, no longer class struggle, no longer in, against United States and South Korea. So, but uh, I mean you lost uh, almost a you know, quarter million uh, you know, soldiers there, and so you. You've got to find a way to define this, right? And so that's why they, they, come, they bring back this whole notion of nationalism. You know, that you, so you guys, your people suffer, or your people kind of make a sacrifice not for supporting a communist ally, but you come back and you support it because, I mean, you, you, are, you are saving your own nation. So that's the whole new message of patriotism and nationalism. Huh. So that's the new framework to uh, rename this war.
1: Um, so it's, they've stripped out all the incendiary rhetoric. It's, it's really interesting. Because there's this whole part where you talk about how they no longer refer to the South Koreans as running dogs or, or you know, imperialist lackeys or puppets. Mm-hmm. Uh, they no longer even call the U.S. you know war mongers or war criminals or imperialist invaders. Um, but that 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 rhetoric had survived for quite a while. I mean, that's what was used still in talking about the war until when.
0: Well that's uh, for the uh I th- at least until uh, early 1990s. Okay, that's what I, That's what
1: mm-hmm. I thought. I was I sort of put it in around that time. Um, You know, I'm curious, how are the the causes of the war now described? You know, there's kind of a careful neutrality in in, in this film, but outside of this film, is it now commonplace when you look at the way that in the the classroom, when they talk about the causes of the war, is this too stripped now of its anti-imperialist or or revolutionary uh, motivations?
0: just give you, the, uh, again, a quick example. First of all, it's, uh, it's a very sensitive topic today because of the uh, North Korean uh, and China relations. And so I just, uh, you know, we tried to have a conference in Shanghai back in t- 2012. You're and, supposed uh, to invite me to that. <laughs> oh, sure, yes, I will next time. <laughs> so they, but the, uh, because this is an international conference, so we need to get permission from the uh, Ministry of Education. And so they, they, they just told us, uh, you, no, you cannot have the conference in China. And because North Korea is a diplomatic issue, and the korean war is a sensitive historical topic and also you use american money and uh, having conference in china so there might be some uh, uh, in, in, not so good <laughs> not so good implications you know so that's still a, a politically sensitive topic
1: so where's it going to be Um uh, don't know yet. Undisclosed, yeah. Undisclosed. Yeah. Yeah. At a, <laughs> On a day. boat. <laughs> but
0: <laughs> another telling example is see uh, if they don't talk about this in classroom in, a, in any extensive way. Uh, two years ago, they released in a film. They called uh, you know, uh, my war, uh-huh. and uh, it's uh, a movie and uh, talking about this war. And so. it's Really interesting to look at this movie and uh, to watch this movie and see they have they make no mention of North Korea at all. You know, there's only one a split a second. There's a North Korean uh, guide and showing the direction of the road and for the Chinese volunteer army and uh, I mean just for that. You know, that's the only. In a split of a second, you'll see North Korea in the film. Wow. And But this is a film about a North Korean... This is a film <laughs> about a Korean war. So that's... You know, I have you. to
2: say, it would be interesting. You you might think about doing some comparative stuff with, with the U.S. Because I'm just thinking of some of... Uh, of course, the Korean War is known as the Forgotten War in, in the U.S. Um, when it is remembered, where there are books about it or or movies, just some things I'm thinking of, South Koreans are just a backdrop. I mean, they're like... There's trees, you know, and snow and South Koreans, too. And it's mostly an American unit. The humans, the individuals are Americans. I mean, I think you could find interesting parallels between the way uh, historically over time, North Koreans are just kind of the backdrop or they even fade away from Chinese memories and representations of the Korean War. And Americans actually do the same with South Korea. I mean, now there's this big narrative. Obama was into it. Trump does it, too thanks to the Korean War and the U.S. commitment, now there's this wonderful place, South Korea. But the actual war itself is kind of told and represented as as Americans fighting, you know, and South Koreans are usually not there. I think that I grew up watching MASH, not even really
1: contextualizing it at all i mean <laughs> yeah. it, it, it yeah. basically had nothing to do with the actual war i mean of course it was intended it's to be sort as of vietnam, a parable right. for vietnam but right, yeah
0: right. i mean just look at the uh, uh the title of the documentary i'm talking about this unforgettable victory you know it's kind of the same in the same line was the american uh, reference of the korean war as the uh, the, the, forgotten the forgotten war, war. and so, we talked about remember i think
2: obama uh, president obama uh, it came commemorated some site here some new Korean War something museum mm-hmm. or something and Memorial his speech Sight. was called like the forgotten victory mm-hmm. that, and, and you know, and that Obama <laughs> talked about how we called the forgotten war, but actually we forgot the great victory we won for this wonderful place, South Korea. You know, so so these strange parallels between right, the strange. great power. They both call it a victory. It's, it's
0: <laughs> very strange because on the one hand you see how China, in you know, moving away from revolutions, trying to depoliticize or de- demobilize. Demobilize. That was, that was a really
1: interesting word you used. They're right. demobilizing the viewers, right?
0: Right, right. But at the same time, you know, you see the American, especially after Obama's. Uh, Speech at the mem- uh, Korean Memorial in uh, 2013. Actually, uh, America is trying to mobilize, you know, this this emotions among uh, Americans to talk about this war as a way, you know, you see a, a democracy and a prosperity in the Korean Peninsula, and so that's an interesting contrast to see <laughs> the two countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah, very interesting. So, John, um, or or both of you, I mean, I, I'm sure you've both look, paid a little bit of attention to that. Uh, So that that film came out in 2013. And so, you know, then five years since, how have media representations of North Korea changed, especially since the nuclear crisis has been, you know,
2: hotting up since 2015? One um, development has been, it's linked to the whole big thing. You obviously know a lot about Kaiser of kind of the... uh, the Chinese netizen, you know, and all the ways in which uh, voices online, you know, uh, have shaped some of the politics, some some of the foreign policy. I would say North Korea has been one uh, realm where, uh, you know, we talked about, Anjia talks about controls on academic conferences. uh, But I can also point to a lot of examples of how... The debate on North Korea has been one of the most open foreign policy debates over the last five, six years in a Chinese context. You know, there there are a few examples like Dong Yuan, this guy who went too far and kind of lost his position. But, you know, they're, they're relatively mild. And for the most part, uh, I, I've watched this because I know a lot of these academics and the room to say a bunch of different things about North Korea is really wide.
1: And it is deliberately so. Correct. This is not omission. Right. This is deliberate. This is quite, I mean.
2: And so you so that's at the elite stratum. And kind of the foreign policy establishment, um, but but there's another manifestation of that at the public, you know. And so, again, occasionally it gets shut down, like it's too much of the fatty Kim third or yeah, whatever. But there's pop, yeah. a lot of that yeah. out there, you know. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and uh, the party's not going to great lengths to sort of stop that and control that. And that you
1: know? is so significant, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. But I think you know we need to also uh, uh, look at the the foreign policy uh, uh, world in China. Uh, I mean, Deng Yuan and even Shen Zhihua himself—you know—they are not necessarily the uh, uh, the official voice of uh, uh, Chinese foreign policy. You know, these two—they are tend to be radical and they have radical view of uh, uh, the PRC and DPRK relations. And. Uh, I mean, overall, the uh, uh, because this is the reason why I'm saying this is because you know I work on the regular basis with Chinese news media, and so uh, when I write an op-ed, and so they would tell me, uh, you know, no North Korea because this is a uh, highly sensitive issues. But I think uh, starting later uh, last year, and they start uh, uh, commissioning me to uh, write articles about North Korea, hmm. so that's kind of opened up the uh, the in a more public uh, form you know to talk about North Korea so I would see that as a sign of uh, maybe something going on there in a high level uh, this this, this,
1: this dovetails really well with the question so we've, we've got a new feature we're asking our access members to contribute questions that they can actually have asked on the air and this one actually comes from somebody who I believe you know he's one of your students Noah Weber Okay, so uh, he asks. So in America, the Korean War is sometimes referred to as the Forgotten War, as we've just talked about. It's sandwiched between the two more memorable conflicts of, you know, World War II and Vietnam. So in the Chinese context, does the broader historical narrative, uh, you know, of, of of of抗日建国, tend to overshadow the the the抗美援朝, or does the Korean conflict receive attention? And if it does receive attention, is it in media? Or is it in education? Where is this concentrated?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, actually, the uh, Korean War or the uh, Kamen Yuan Chao, it, it is one of, it used to be one of the most remembered war in, in PRC history, because again, back to uh, Kaiser's previous comments, this is one of the three uh, pillars, uh, pillars yeah, yeah. you know, in uh, that, that really it's the founding myth of PRC, right? So you look at the land reform. This is a basic; it's basically set up the economic system. And then this, uh, uh, the suppression of counter-revolutionaries This is a political consolidation. Right. So here we have the Korean War that kind of really set the tone for Chinese foreign policy for the next uh, thirty
2: years. Yeah, not right? being bullied anymore. Right. Exactly. Not so exactly. for both nationalist and flux.
0: international reasons. Right. And so, but now, uh, you know, it's it's getting uh, really uh, uh, difficult to talk about this war. So we start seeing. Yeah. Uh, but maybe here's one thing to uh, I just encourage everybody to uh, to go to see the new uh, uh, the renovated uh, Korean War Memorial in Dandong, and it's a, it, it, it's going through a uh, three-year renovation, and it's supposed to open uh, sometime this summer. And so you will see a uh, uh, physical I hope they uh, keep that diorama. <laughs> I would be really
2: sad if they got rid of that thing. I,
1: I, I love, love how the historiography is so easy to parse in China. Just when you know they they build this museum, I mean it's it's great. It's like Okay, I got it now. You know,
2: then we can do a, a Seneca field trip because then exactly. we have to Because the North Koreans redid uh, their uh, history museum. You got a date, man. Um, so we can we can combine them. I'll bring the mobile rig, and we will do that.
1: That would be <laughs> Nice. Great. So we've got one more question. This comes from Clay Hedges, and it's specifically for John. So he asks, I would like to return to a period last year when China was offering its double freeze compromise to de-escalate tension between the U.S. and the DPRK." Just so for those who don't know, the double freeze would be you free- freeze uh, uh, nuclear weapons development and, and ballistic tests in exchange for a freeze of... Uh, the U.S.-South Korea joint exercises that are conducted every year. Uh, and this is something that China's pushing. And so he asks, first, why didn't the compromise receive more consideration from Washington? Was it simply because it was proposed by China and would be seen as ceding too much global leadership to China? Or was it that foreign policy hawks were in the ascendant in Washington and they would reject any compromise involving U.S. military forces? Or was it something else entirely?
2: Okay, good question. Uh, I would say something else. Um So the freeze-freeze idea, first of all, the South Koreans were pretty lukewarm about it, uh, and the Americans were negative. You know, there's something a little bit sacrosanct about these military exercises. Uh, And so there's there's some fixed thinking, like, we just can't touch that. If we touch that, it means we're abandoning South Korea, and before we know it, Kim Jong-un will invade. I mean, there's literally some of that stuff out (laughs) there, right? So... I mean, you you speak of that a little contemptibly. Like you don't believe that that with, is with so. deep content, okay. yes, uh, contempt. Um, yes, okay. contempt. It is not so, but it but it's a real. I understand the people who believe that truly fear that. So uh, there's a, there's a fear there's a fear to tweak the exercises or suspend the exercises because of this notion that you know if you do that the whole thing kind of comes falling down. Another reason. Your questioner, I agree with one premise. There was, and in fact, I was a little suspicious of the freeze freeze proposal because it came from China. Simply because of the stuff we've been talking about, the Chinese are not talking to the North Koreans. Mm. So it's one thing if it's a coordinated offer. Right. And and there's no reason
1: to believe that that this would work, would be accepted by North uh, Korea. On the
2: contrary, there's reason to believe. China wants a freeze-freeze, <laughs> but North Korea may want something quite different.
1: It's called a win-win for China. <laughs> right, right, exactly. We like, no you, longer have these exercises yeah. taking place right off of our... Right. right, and
2: right. Russia, you know, also was very happy with the freeze-freeze. So right. it's kind of <laughs> happening right now. Uh, the, the joint exercises happened, but they were... Actually, they were delayed, you know, suspended... Uh, delayed for the Olympics was a kind of big deal. They're happening next month, but they'll probably be toned down. In fact, there was a very funny editorial just the other day in, in I think, Remin Rabao, Whereas it was the Chinese saying like, this is, we said everyone should do this. Right. You know, we said freeze, freeze. And we said then you should have peace talks and denuclearization but, talks. But, and that's what this summit didn't is. It so it we look should like get that credit. To,
1: didn't it kind of look like it to you though? I mean, the, 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 it, it was rattled into freeze, freeze? Uh,
2: yeah. But what's funny is what we're watching now, uh, I call this the Chinese exclusion anxiety. You know, and there's, a, there's a Japanese flomo. version of it too. Phobia. They're they're really afraid. They want it's it's also getting what you prayed for. The Chinese have been saying to the Americans too. You got to talk to the North Koreans. You know, if you want to deal with this thing, you got to talk to the North Koreans. Now we're looking at the prospect where Americans <laughs> start talking to, talking to the North Koreans. Koreans. <laughs> yeah, the Chinese saying, "Don't talk about us." Well, we, we need to be there too. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, come back to the Six way Talks. So it's, it's quite interesting to watch this play out.
1: Majal, well, John Delury, thanks very much for taking the time. Fascinating Thank topic.
2: You. Uh, Thank you. Thank uh, you. Well.
1: Before we pack up here, let's make some recommendations for our listeners. But before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out our free daily email newsletter. Or better still, subscribe to our SupChina access membership for uh, just eight dollars and 88 cents a month or 88 dollars a year to enjoy discounts on our events premium content membership on our private slack group where you can ask questions like the ones that you just heard uh it's a marvelously lively place for discussion too if you enjoy the cynical podcast please do go and leave us a positive review on the apple itunes store it means a lot it helps other people discover the podcast so do it uh okay on to recommendations what do you start with you much what do you have for us
0: Oh, I think maybe uh, two books, and uh, so uh, at the uh, the level of elite politics, so there's going to be one book coming out from the Columbia Press, Columbia University Press, a misunderstood friendship, Mao Zedong Kim Il Sung and uh, Sino North Korean uh, relations, 1949 to 1976. And then uh, I just kind of shamelessly self-promote myself, you know. It's uh, it's Go uh, for it. it's uh, a <laughs> it's a podcast, it's okay. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, we have a lot of elite politics books, you know, and I'm, but I'm writing uh, another book in a seditious voice in revolutionary China. So we talk about uh, how ordinary people react to uh, the war campaign and how the uh, middle-ranking officials, so they sold this notion of internationalism and uh, China North Korean relations to the ordinary people. So that will be uh, that's in the pipeline, and so hopefully. What it will they come out uh, quicker.
1: Great. Good, good
2: recommendation. All right. I, I'm looking forward to reading the book too. John, what do you have for us? Okay. So, um, the one I have in mind is a uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping. This, uh, you know, related to the paper I gave, been interested in the the early Deng. And um, there's an interview he does with Oriana Falacci. Yeah. You talked about yeah. that. Yeah. So, I highly recommend everyone to go give that a read. You can Google it. You can read the uh, the Washington Post one comes up. Um, or there's various versions online, so it's really it's very it's accessible and Chinese versions too. Of course, were published. There's a couple things about it. One, well, what year was that again? Uh, 1980. 80. 80 yeah. 80, right. um, so one thing that's so striking about it is, first of all, actually, Falaci herself, I think, could be an inspiration to journalists who are struggling with how to ask questions. It's a very combative interview. But she's combative. She asks incisive questions where she's really thought about the questions, b- but not to sort of corner dung, you know, or trick him. I mean, she elicits really interesting answers. Uh-huh. So I think it's it's, it's actually a model. You read these Trump transcripts, and you know, from the New York Times, and sometimes you're like, you guys, like, can you can you do your homework before you go in? You know, the notion of interviewing is just keep him talking, right? Um, and now Xi Jinping doesn't even— would, wouldn't would never sit, sit down for right something so right. i think there's a message for both the journalists and the leaders of what a real interview should be like that's 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 part of it but the other stuff is you got dung just laying in on the importance of no more lifelong tenure that's oriana Falashi. Yeah.
1: o-r-i-a-n-a falaci is F A W L A C I. yeah uh, yeah right. so
2: highly recommend it. very timely let's just say that <laughs> great no
1: i'm, I'm definitely going to check <laughs> nice. out that interview um, you know, I'm going to make a, a funny recommendations. I, I this is this is uh, I've I've been to quite a few conferences of the Association for Asian Studies, and I'm going to recommend that conference oh, even if for people. I mean, it's sure. just, yes, I you should I'm have thought of that so, much I'm <laughs> So impressed with how well this was organized, uh, with the, the caliber of the people who showed up, how much fun that, that I've had here. Uh, it's I think that people who think of of academic conferences as just you know. Uh, These these just insufferable nerd fests. There's there was (laughs) actually, (laughs) but there were a lot of uh, fantastically interesting panels uh, with with really good good people, uh, really really high quality people. I've gotten into uh, uh, amazing conversations with people who are doing. um, Of course, this is a very target rich environment for somebody who does a current affairs podcast on China. So there's that too. (laughs) (laughs) Ducks in a barrel. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Got them all fish or ducks. Ducks in a row. Whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, hey, thanks a lot, guys. That was terrific. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, yeah, Kaiser. Uh, yeah. The Sinica podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at sinica at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash news and follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina news. I want to give a, a very, very special thanks. to to Madalika Sika uh, and to her absent husband Jim Millward who's actually in Barcelona uh, for allowing me to invade their home and record three podcasts here so thanks so much Madalika uh, and thanks for listening we will see you next week take care